Learn how to build a better sign and print shop from a few crusty sign guys who've made more mistakes than they care to admit. Conversations and advice on pricing, sales, marketing, workflow, growth, and more. You're listening to the Better Sign Shop Podcast with your hosts, Peter Kurunis, Michael Riley, and Bryant Gillespie. Before we jump into the episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, GCI Digital Imaging, grand format printer to the trade. We talk a lot about outsourcing on the podcast and the importance of having good partners. And GCI Digital Imaging is a good partner to have. Owner TJ Bedact and his team focus on providing killer customer service just the way grandmother used to make it. If you're interested in learning their approach to business, hop back into the archives to episode nine, where the guys and I interview TJ about customer experience. So if you're looking for a high quality trade printer for banners, wraps, and other printed graphics that your customers throw at you, check out GCI Digital Imaging at printgci.com. Welcome to the next edition of the Better Sign Shop podcast. As always, I've got uh, co-hosts, Peter Karunas, the Sign Shop Yoda, and Mike, the Sign Shop Samurai, Michael Riley. Do you like that one? Is that better? It's better than the Sign Shop Chimichanga. Mm. Definitely. It's a step in the right direction. Can we see like a samurai move or something? I think we can do better. Where's your sword at? Ah, there you go. Look at him. Like a champ. I have a ruler. Anything for the audience. (laughs) Yeah, so you guys seem thrilled. Very excited today. You should be, though. I'm excited to be here. an extra special guest, which we'll tell you about in just a moment. But before we dive in, what's, what's new with you guys? What's the scoop? Pete, how goes the sale? Status quo, I I told my employees yesterday, last night, it was an emotional moment. Yeah, I, I buttered them up with like pizza and, and, and beer. And they're like, hey, what are we doing here? We're, we're talking about like, I started talking about like the end of the year and where we are as a team and how we kicked ass this year. And then I like just threw the hammer down. I'm like, all right, so I'm no longer your, your owner. And in, in most in the most theatrical way, if you could close your eyes and imagine how this happened, it was not scripted. It was not planned. The guy was just late. It was a five o'clock in the evening meeting. He came at like five fifteen and walked in the door and I'm like, and there's your new owner. Just like that. As he walked in the door, I'm like, uh, that could not have actually worked out better, but it was maybe more of a, a grand gesture or a grand entrance, if you will. Uh, something I wasn't really planning for, but it, it went over really well. He's a really nice guy. He's committed. He's right now in a, a the franchise does a mentorship program. So you get a little bit of like a a training in two weeks in training in their headquarters. And then prior to that training, you get to shadow a local franchise owner. So he's mm-hmm. kind of involved in that weekly shadowing right now. They really do a really great job of just prepping a new owner to come in for a smoother transition. They're not just bringing somebody in that's just got deep pockets and and a good credit score. So it's nice to it's nice to get somebody that's going to be the owner that's going to be familiar with their systems, familiar with 
you know, the process because they went through that mentorship program and, and also, you know, their, their foundations training as well. So it's going to be nice. Yeah. We're excited. So are, you, are you feeling bittersweet about it or what? Uh, yeah. You know, uh, last night, the emotions were a little, a little tough on me, you know, uh, as I said to you guys on our last episode, you know, this is, this is it for me in the sign business. My, my calling is now helping sign shop owners achieve operational excellence. I've achieved that twice. I don't want to go through it again. I'm going to miss, I, like I said, I, I'm going to miss a couple of pieces of it, uh, as you guys know, but it was a little emotional for me last night to finally say goodbye and let everybody know. Did that, you tear uh, up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, every, forever in a day, the sign shop's like your first, like, it's like, it's not your first child. I Since I've had a child, I, I can't honestly say that in good faith, but it's like your, it's like your first love, you know, it's, it's tough to walk away from something that you've known for all of these years, but the grass is greener on the other side. As long as you have a plan, I have a plan and the better sign shop and what we're doing here is part of that plan. So I'm really excited for what we're doing and and the people that we're talking to and the, the feedback and the encouragement continues to get better and better. How hard do you think he cried, Mike? Scale of one to 10. Oh, uh, like a 13, like a full, like sob. (laughs) Just, just ugly cried like a baby. I think yeah, I would totally. have too, honestly. I can remember like the the final goodbye at uh, the old shop. It was definitely like a bittersweet moment and teared up a little bit. You know, interestingly, when I sold my shop, I I did not cry. <laughs> I I uh, I danced out the door <laughs> and uh, and promptly I threw my watch away. That was uh, that was kind of like my celebratory thing. I, I just threw a very expensive watch in the trash can as I walked out of my attorney's office and. That I no more. So it was that at the end of like your buyout or your like earn out type of like, Hey, teach them how to do the business part of it. Or was that like when you first got the check? Oh yeah. No, when I first got the check and and walked out of the the closing, but you were crying at the end of the other. (laughs) (laughs) It was probably like, like, Hey, this is over with finally tears of joy. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Tears of joy at that point. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It's a. It's a good feeling when you, you know, you finally close on the sale and you get a sense of accomplishment for what you worked for for so long. So I'm happy you know, to repeat. Thank you, Mike. But that's exactly what it feels like. I'm actually kind of surprised to hear somebody else would have an emotion of just dancing out the door. Like I could. I just don't have that that same feeling. But um, you know, it is an accomplishment, and that's how. If there's anybody that's out there that's ever sold a business, they know. You know, it's a, it's a it's a time to celebrate. It's a time to celebrate the achievement and pass it on to to somebody else that's that's going to reap some of those benefits that you, that I've reaped or reaped 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 uh, that I've obtained throughout <laughs> the years. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad you corrected, Duke, because I didn't know I I didn't know how to respond there. I could get my nine year old in here, but she's <laughs> at school. <laughs> She made me take a spelling test the other day. That was part of her homework was to give me a spelling test. And I think I missed like three or four because she was just mumbling the whole time like this. Like, yeah. Worthwhile. <laughs> All right. So who have we got today? Right. What do we got going on today? Dan Antonelli, industry legend, wrote not one, but two books on branding. So we're super excited to have him on. It should be an interesting conversation. I could say that I've 
went through the newest book. I've got quite a few questions about it. Definitely some strong language in there targeted at sign shops or, or educating small uh, business owners and home service brands on how to deal with sign shops. So I think that'll make for an interesting conversation. We'll see how it goes. Guys, we have Dan Antonelli joining us on the podcast. We've been looking forward to this one for a long time. He really needs no introduction. Dan from Kick Charge, welcome aboard. Thanks, Bye, Dan. guys. Good to see you guys. Welcome, Dan. All right. So Dan has a new book that came out in the last couple months, Branded, Not Blanded. Tell us about a little about the book, Dan. So the book is really meant to be a resource for both home service company owners and for designers alike. You know, in it, I really just wanted to spell out sort of how a home service business should be utilizing a brand, how they create a brand, what are the important aspects of how to build a really successful and disruptive brand for their home service company. We talk a lot about you know, the fundamentals for everything from naming to color to consumer psychology. And of course, you know, uh, a fair amount is discussed about effective wrap design and what goes into those effective wrap designs. So we sort of lay out kind of a blueprint as far as here's the things you should, should know about branding home service companies. Here's tips that you can use. Here's what not to do. Here's what you should be doing. So if you're working with a designer, Certainly, it's a good resource, so you can go into that process a lot more educated. And then if you are a designer, certainly learning more about the psychology behind branding and how that plays such a role in what you're designing for that home service business, um, how it needs to live and breathe, obviously, in that outdoor environment, and making sure that you understand the logic behind branding. And I think that that, for me, that was something that there, you know, there's a lot of books on on branding and, and a lot of books are more sort of pie in the sky stuff and not real kind of nuts and bolts stuff. And there isn't really a, a strong focus on obviously home surface branding as a very specific niche. So I wanted to really have that resource out there that, you know what, like this will give you a really good understanding of how this works. Um, and even simple things like even just like Remembering that for a home service company, primarily your audience is actually a woman. You know, she's making 75 to 80 percent of the original phone calls to that home service contractor. And so we talk a lot about how you design brands that actually appeal to women and, and making sure the mindset is there for that home service owner to recognize that it's almost not as important as to what they like. It's really more important mm. to what Mrs. Jones likes and what will appeal to her and how these brands help diffuse bias and stereotypes that they have against contractors. And that's really, you know, it's kind of interesting because it's, it's almost like, you know, it's definitely there, super interesting to me. It, there, there's like a, there's a song by suicidal tendencies called subliminal. I don't know if the, I may be dating myself with that song, <laughs> but you, you sort of think about what it is that we're doing and all, all brands are really trying to do is control what someone feels about you. Ultimately they make that decision but we're going to do everything in our power to put an image in front of her that will have her believe something about the experience she may get if she chooses to hire you. So you're talking, you know, a much deeper level than just, hey, it's a really cool truck wrap or, hey, it's got cool graphics. 
It's more about, well, you know, again, what, what will she feel about having you come to her home? So controlling what she may feel, the emotions connecting with her before, before you ring the doorbell is all that we're trying to basically control as best we can. 100%. I, I, that definitely tracks with me. Like my wife makes at least 80% of the decisions in the household. Yeah. <laughs> and Mike, how about you, man? You're newly married. Would you, does that track with you or no? <laughs> uh, well, I'm the one that does all this work in my house, so we don't really call a lot of contractors. But no, it, it totally does. And I, you know, I see trucks going down the road for con, you know contractors and, and service providers all the time. And I see graphics that are, you know, very almost angry yeah. and aggressive and, and like, yeah, we talk about that too. Barbed yeah, wire. And, the, yeah. Yeah. The and it, right. I always wonder like, what do you like? Well, I don't, I don't want that in front of my house. I wouldn't feel comfortable with this person in my house with my wife alone. Like it's very mean, angry, aggressive, clearly trying to portray something about the owner's personality type of rap that doesn't really say anything about their actual business or the service they're going to provide or, or giving you any level of comfort at all. And I, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I don't think a lot of people really think that. through. Yeah. Because well. they, they think it should be cool to them, you know? Right. You know, it's always hey, about yeah, what the look owner at this wants. Dude, what, he's all you know? muscled. And, and I'm like, yeah. So the, you know, the running guy holding the wrench, looking like he's going to beat the shit out of you. It's not exactly <laughs> endearing right. to Mrs. Jones. Like Mrs. Jones is already scared shitless about who's coming to her home. Let's not make her feel even more scared by the muscled guy holding the wrench, running towards you and looking super aggressive. So you think, you know, certainly we talk a lot about that part in the book. And then we just talk about how the brands themselves really are, are, are designed in a way to try to make it more sticky in that homeowner's mind, right? So the repetition of the vehicles and the impressions that they see of those vehicles in those communities are not, and, and this is where people think that truck wraps are supposed to be calls to action, and they're not. They're really meant to be brand building exercises. There may be an instance where someone's driving behind you and they're like, oh, my God, I need to get my you know, electrical work done. And maybe they call at that point. But it's really meant to be when they are actually ready for service, they remember the name of the company that they've seen. Right. So pops so, right in their head. Yeah. You know, so the idea of winning on the streets translates to winning online, because if I can get that name to be memorable and I can get that consumer to remember the name when they need service, now they're talking, I mean, now they're typing into Google a branded search term for a branded name. So you're no longer competing to be number one for electricians near me. You're competing with yourself because they're only typing in your name at that point. And that's where we really see, again, some crazy stats and results for people that we've rebranded as far as what happens with organic branded keyword searches versus the prior period of time. So if I can get it sticky and they see that truck on that neighbor's driveway and then they see it on another neighbor's driveway and then it's three months later and they're like, oh, what was that cold truck that I saw that my neighbor was using? Oh, yeah, that was. And then the name sticky and then they just type that into Google. So you win online when you can build that effective brand out on the streets. And I think people really forget that part of it, too. And they think, oh, my God, like. That's why we got to put the phone number so big because they're going to be calling me right away <laughs> if they see the truck. And it's like half the stuff we're putting on in the streets today don't even have a phone number because it's not it's not the mechanism that people actually take to contact you. 
Most of them are going to Google the, the name of your company because it's much easier to Google that and get the phone number from that than to try to remember a random set of, you know, seven digit numbers or nine, whatever digits they are. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Like when you're working with a home service brand, do you have like a, like a boilerplate, like a script, like, Hey, if they mention phone number and making it larger, like here's like the playbook. <laughs> Because it, I used oh. to print like a lot of T-shirts in our old shop, in yeah. addition to wraps and other things. And like my pet peeve, like every service company that we ever worked with, like on their shirts, small logo on the front with the phone number, big logo on the back with the phone number and yeah. the website. And that's it was yeah. like the bane of our existence. And I'm like. We shoot that stuff down pretty quick, especially the phone numbers on T-shirts when we do we do a lot of uniform design. And I'm like, when was the last time you actually took the phone number off the back of somebody like you're gonna be <laughs> waiting in line in Walmart and like, oh, yeah, let me just call this guy up. Like, so, yeah, we shoot that stuff down um, very quickly. We, we, we often say the bigger the phone number, the weaker your brand is. And you see that often where you see somebody's got a huge phone number. I want them to be able to call me. And, you know, it's a crutch is really what it is, because if you have a great brand name and a, and a memorable image, the phone number almost becomes irrelevant because Google puts it in front of them if it's done correctly. So we always say website is, is more important than phone. So if we're talking about priority, we try to make sure that definitely a website is included. Sometimes the phone number is included. I mean, listen, we still put phone numbers on there and I, and I don't I'm not opposed to putting a phone number on there just so long as it doesn't come at the expense of the brand. Okay, because again, the likelihood of someone remembering those those digits and that, those actual numbers, it's more likely that they will remember the brand name, and then Siri and your smartphone is going to deliver the phone number to them. So I'm not really that worried. Oh my God, they're not going to figure out how to contact me. Well, if you got a shitty brand, yeah, they probably won't be able to figure out how to contact <laughs> you. But you know, so so Dan, I'm I'm a little biased here, so I'm going to just step in and, and ask you the uh, a question that just kind of came to mind. What would your philosophy be for those brands that are out there? I'm not going to name a couple. One eight hundred plumber for their name that that, that their branding is actually the number that they that they use. One eight hundred water damage. One eight hundred got junk. Mm-hmm. Now, what would your how would your strategy? alter for brands like that see yeah so that's a different set of circumstances because the brand name is the phone number so you can't really obviously not put the brand name on there and the brand name is the phone number and we've done a few that have that type of naming but again now it's like making sure that that element is done in a way that i can remember that and of course i i presume that your dot com matches the actual phone number and, and things like that so that's certainly a little more unique scenario where you have a phone number that has the actual name of the company in it at that point. So that's okay. <laughs> I wouldn't tell you not to put, put that on your truck. At that, at that point. Yeah. Okay, good. I actually do have a follow-up question and, and I realize I, I may be getting into a little bit more, but you, you were talking a little bit about your philosophy and how you sh- immediately shoot things down. So I do think it's relevant but what would you do in, in instances? And I'm, I'm and I've read through this book. I've I, I've as I told you offline, I've sent this to a couple of my colleagues as well. And what would you do for brands that don't necessarily have like that? I noticed. I don't know what you would call it in your business, but I guess I you have like icons, you have like figurines, characters that really like are are what's generating that that buzz. You see that primarily. 
what would you do for a brand that doesn't have that or doesn't have a mascot or or a logo or an icon like that? Yeah, so How I mean, we do your we design do a strategy lot. alter. Yeah, we do a lot that are icon based as well. And you try to develop an icon that is unique, that is eye catching, that is memorable. And you think, you know, obviously there's a lot of big companies that go with a more icon based strategy. So it's more about, again, making sure that every time they see that symbol, that they associate that symbol with your brand. And the way that that happens is just repetition over time, you know? So, so thinking about a symbol, if there's a way that that symbol can help communicate the nature of the business, that's obviously a plus. If there's a way that the symbol can also help communicate something unique in terms of the visuals. Uh, so whether it's color, whether it's just, you know, something that obviously looks different and well thought out. So like when you, th if you're looking at HVAC as an example of something where they tend to actually try to use a lot of symbols and it's actually a bad idea, but you see a lot of red and blue arrows. You see a lot of uh, snowflakes and, and suns, right? And, oh, well, because we do heating and cooling. Let's have a snowflake and a sun. And, and the real problem with that is now you're talking about symbols and icons and graphics that you can't even own. You can associate those symbols and graphics maybe with the idea that you provide heating and cooling, but there isn't a compelling reason for me to look at those symbols and specifically identify them with your own unique brand. So those are why we typically try to avoid some of those types of approaches as well, because I can't own it. Like, so if, why would I put a brand out on the street that you can't own in your space or have potentially be associated with someone else? And that's why, like, we're, we're you know, we're sort of down on white vans, you know, because white vans by themselves are very challenging even to own as a brand strategy. So why would I why would that white van stand out to me as something that would be memorable when there's a thousand other white vans that are already out there in my market. So, you know, common colors, red, white, and blue colors, we typically want to avoid at all costs if we can do it, if it makes sense to do it. But I'm certainly don't want to put a red, white, and blue brand in a market that's saturated with five other red, white, and blue vans and red, white, and blue brands. You also look at the fact that even like red, white, and blue as a unique color palette is not really ownable by any business because it's associated with Americana. It's associated with so many other things. So why would I put a brand out that as soon as I see red, white, and blue, I'm actually associating with something that's unrelated to you, right? So we try to look at that and say, can we think of a unique set of colors that no one else in your market is using, that no one else associates with a different brand? So that's the other part of the theory that really comes into practice in what we do. I think that's overlooked as well, right? Like the color side of, of branding and not just like the logo. Yeah. The more unique you can go in that space, the better. And I think that's yeah. one thing I think we, we really pride ourselves is we, we have like a lot of weird color combinations where people are like, I never would have thought that those three colors would even make sense to put together. And we spend a lot of time on that, but that's very intentional that we do that because we want that to be ownable. We want it every time you see this, maybe whatever it's, if it's purple and process blue, like I want only them, the consumer to think about your brand when they see those colors, not think about other things unrelated to your company. Yeah. How do you feel about purple and hot pink? Purple and hot pink is ownable <laughs> though, you know, like who else is and doing it? Yeah, that's 100%. And like, 
the previous iteration of Better Sign Shop, I, I think it was like Ink Sauce was the the name of it, and I like had like some blues, like the tried and true, like trustful blue, and like I yeah, like the message got lost, and you know we it, with this one, I was like, I, I don't know if I was listening to too much like techno synthwave music late <laughs> at night when I was putting this together or not, but it it definitely came out like a retro in your face. You're either gonna love it or hate it bright pink what what did you call it mike I, you was like miami vice like cocaine style or something he said <laughs> uh, yeah exactly what it was that's awesome <laughs> so so dan let, let's put ourselves in the you know our, our listeners here our, our sign shop owners right and, and obviously in your book i mean you, you have some uh, choice advice for for sign shop owners and the sign industry at large in a in an average sign shop, a guy comes in. He's got an HVAC company. He wants a, a wrap, and he's had a logo for a long time. And it's you know it's an aggressive, muscly guy on an American flag background with you know like barbed wire wrapped around him or some stupid shit like that. Yeah, we've all been there. It, it, most sign shops are are very hesitant to push back on a customer and and say, "Yo, your logo is awful, dude. You like you just can't do this." How do you get to a point where you you're able to overcome those objections, or at least that that internal fear of pushing back on a customer and saying, "Hey, listen, your ideas just aren't good, and why don't you let us do what yeah. we do best?" We've we've all had to use that shitty logo and try and make lemonade out of you know rotten lemons. You know the results never good, and like you said, it never works for the customer. And you know, the second that van leaves your shop, it's not going to generate any you know any new revenue, any leads for that customer. How, how do you get better so, at design shop? I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack there. So so we we are certainly blessed with the fact that people who come to us, the vast majority of them already know, like they've already sort of read enough or have listened to me speak or or have seen the results that we we've garnered for other companies, and so they're already at the idea of saying I need a rebrand, right? For the ones who aren't. Because again, we'll probably get about twenty. We'll get about twenty inquiries inquiries a week of people requesting to work with us, right through through the website. And and out of the twenty, you know, there's there's a good amount of them that say we love your truck wraps, we love your designs, we want you to design our truck. And we say, okay, well, generally speaking, we almost never design for people that we haven't branded first, but. Sometimes we do like sometimes someone actually has something good. Like it is possible that someone has a good logo. Right. So, so, so we'll ask them to send it to us and then I'll do an evaluation at that point. So I'll say, listen, like what you have will never work or be effective for this medium. Here's why. And I'll lay out sort of the case as to why this isn't going to work. Now, at that point, we'll say you have two options with, with kick charge, right? So your option is, let us redesign it and let us do it correctly or we can't work with you. And that's, you know, really up to you. Obviously, whatever you want to do is, is totally fine, but I will not take your money for something that I know will not work. Now, can every sign shop, does every sign shop have that luxury to just say, hey, you know what? Your logo sucks. I'm not working with it. See you later. Well, well, no, they, they don't. But let me let me let me say one thing about telling someone no and then backing it up with logic is that a lot of times they tell us, well, you're, you're the first person to tell us that, 
how come no one else told me that? The silkscreen guy didn't tell me that. My last rap guy didn't tell me that. And I said, well, sometimes they're not qualified to actually tell you that, right? And then sometimes they're just set up to print stuff. And that's all they're really interested in. I'm not really interested in doing that. I'm interested in building something that's going to grow and expand your business. And I'm also not interested in, in wasting your money. So it's a very different kind of mindset. And I think it's I think it's horrible sometimes some of the stuff that is put out there and that that responsibility for whoever is designing it is not respected more, is not is not given more thought. And so, you know, again, certain shops, their whole business model is based on generating, you know, just printing volume. Like we want to print stuff. We want to print stuff. We want to print stuff. That's fine. Like, but you have to accept the fact that you're playing with somebody's livelihood and you, to me, better know what you're doing. If you're taking money for something that people are trusting you to know your craft and to know, you know, the logic behind what you're designing, um, like you, you just better know what you're doing. Um, so, so that part to me frustrates me a little bit when, when you drive down the highway and you see so many things that are destined to fail that will never generate work for that particular company and never deliver brand promise. Um, whether or not they're legible is even another issue. Like we don't even have the fundamentals down as far as can we even read the name, the phone number, or even discern what it is that they do. So there, there's a lot of challenges with that. But, you know, again, to your point, Michael, like not everyone really has the luxury to say, I'm not working with it. But can we say, I can improve it. I can fix some of the flaws in this. If you, you know, but you have to establish the credibility to have them trust you. And that part is also something where you see guys struggle with and owners struggle with because they're not doing a good enough job of instilling the confidence for that customer to believe that they can actually solve their problems. So, so why, why is that? Well, you walk in their shop and their own shop branding is a mess, right? There's, there's stuff that's all different. The website's different. The homepage is different. The Facebook page is different. So like they're not even practicing the idea of being branded themselves. So why, why would I think that you can solve my branding problems when I look at your brand and I'm like, this thing's a mess. Like everything's different in this shop. The, the waiting room is, is not branded properly. The wall wraps are not done. Like, so there's a lot of it is almost sort of self-inflicted because they don't, they don't instill the confidence that that contractor is looking to get from themselves. If they can get a clear picture of, wow, these guys really have their, their shit together. And, and the other part too is marketing design in a way that makes them feel comfortable with those decisions. So what results have you got? And, and there's, there's shops that do good work. They just don't market the results that they actually get for the companies that yeah, this was this was I had this at the top of my list, and that was like this is on the top of out of everything list. that you guys, uh, yeah, every everything that you guys do, <laughs> I, even going back to like the last book, building a big small business brand, everything that you talk about has like an ROI that is clearly attached to it. Like, hey, mm -hmm. we don't want to work with you unless we we're guaranteeing you an ROI on what you spend with us because it's a, an investment. It's not a like a, a good vehicle wrap is not an expense. It's an investment or a good brand right. is not an expense. It's an investment. And I love the way that you like throughout the book and, and even online, like you guys touch on that side of it. Like, Hey, I know if I go and spend X with Dan and his team at kick charge, like that's, that's going to come back to me. 
Uh, and yeah. out of all yeah. the shops that I've talked to, like nobody, nobody does that. And like a lot of it kind of goes back to like just being order takers or actually like a consultative sales process. Yeah. He talks yeah. a lot about that on, on this call, like our podcast and, and also on some of our mastermind calls, but like so, understanding what they're trying to get to uh, yeah. is more important than, than if somebody comes to you with a banner, like, hey, why do they need the banner? Maybe they don't need a banner at all. Yeah. And certainly we talk a lot in the book and we talk even to the customers about the idea of personifying what it is that they actually deliver. So we have a lot of contractors that come to us who perform a great service, right? They get inside the home and they kill it. They, they, they have the best practices down to a science as far as how they interact with the homeowner, how they, you know, they wear the booties, they lay out the red carpet in the front. They do everything really well once they're inside the home. So by the time they leave, the homeowner feels good about that decision. The, the problem is, is most of these guys don't look like they do that, right? So if I can match up the service that they actually provide with, with a brand that communicates that, then that's the home run. Then that's the blueprint. Like that's how these guys win it. And, and the other part too, is you're talking about, well, how do you convince them about, about this? You start talking to them about average tickets, right? You start talking about it because average tickets is hammered home so much through home service. How do we increase our average tickets? Right. And guys hit this wall about how much they can charge for their work. And the problem that they run into is they just don't look like they should be charging as much as they're trying to get, right? So if I show up in a premium brand, you know, uniform, the truck looks amazing, you know, all my other externals are delivering that brand promise, as the consumer, I already expect to pay a premium for that. I already expect that you're not going to be the cheapest guy, okay? So when you start talking to someone who's coming in with, you know, again, maybe a really poor brand, maybe one that's super aggressive. Um, can we speak to them about the idea of how a more polished brand actually will help their average tickets? We have we have a client in, in Jacksonville, Florida that we rebranded like four years ago. And you could take inflation into account a little bit, but their average ticket four years ago was under $6,000. And now their average ticket is over $12,000. Well, well, how did that happen? Now, of course, inflation and, you know, HVAC equipment went higher, right? I, I get that. But now they look like a premium-based home service provider. And as the homeowner, I'm willing to pay more for that. So when you can, again, now does it seem expensive how much they paid us to rebrand them in the scale of things? No. Like, no one goes through the process and at the end of it, they're like, oh, my God, this is a waste of money. It's always like, oh, they, you know, it makes me sort of, feel a little bit bad, but they're always like, you should be charging more money. <laughs> so, so, but when you start talking to them about the benefits of investing in this and, and the other hidden benefit too, that is not talked about is the cultural benefit. All these home service contractors, many of them are complaining they can't get people to work for them, right? No one wants to work for me. I can't find any qualified people. And then you look at the branding and that's problem number one. Do, do I want to wear a uniform from this particular company? Am I going to be proud to drive this truck with this particular brand? And, and so there's a lot of issues sometimes from a cultural standpoint, and the brand can help with that. The brand can really help deliver uh, an environment that is more you know, endearing to a pr prospective um, employee. 
So that part too. So there's just, again, a lot of different things that you can sort of counter with that. And, and of course too, you have to remember there's ego involved too. So I designed it, my buddy designed it, uh, my nephew designed it. They, they're attached to it. It's like their warm blanket. So I get that, but I'm going to tell it to you straight. Like it's not going to work. It'll never work. It's, it's really your call as to whether or not you, you want to proceed or not. So sorry, that was a really long-winded answer there for, for you, Michael. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Hey, Mike, you're obviously doing like a lot of sign designs on a, every single day, but you, you get specialized to the trade. So like, was there any like applicable advice in Dan's book for like what you do? Like if somebody delivers you a sign and like, hey, here's the existing sign, and they're the brand that they're asking you to redesign that sign with, like you don't have a dog in that fight, do you? Because you're kind of removed. I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky for me because I'm, you know, I'm standing on on my client's shoulder. I'm not the one in, directly in front of the, you know, the end user of that sign or or, or whatever or the end buyer it is yeah. that I'm designing. Right. Yeah. And I seventy five percent of the logos that I get that need to go on a sign are, are absolute garbage. I mean, they just, they just are, there's no, there's no sugarcoating it. And, you know, I, tr I try to push back and say like, you know, is there an opportunity here to like, you know, let's spend just a couple hours trying to, you know, improve the look of this logo a little bit, you know, not even like try and rebrand them. Let's just evolve their logo into something that doesn't look like it was made in Microsoft paint 15 years ago. But, you know, for me, no, like it's very, very hard to, to get anybody to be willing to do that. Cause they don't, they don't want to go to their customer and say, Hey, look, man, your, your brand is a pile of dog shit. And you're about to spend, you know, like I just designed a sign for somebody that's going to ticket at $150,000. And the, the logo was times new Roman italics, you know, like, <laughs> and of course I say, you know, like, go have a conversation with your customer and tell them that, you know, they're going to, they're going to drop $150,000 on a sign with a Microsoft system font on it that doesn't, it's not going to accomplish the goal, which is brand awareness, what all signs are. So yeah, for me, it's, it's a, it's an uphill battle and, and I used to lose sleep over it and, and anymore, I just knuckle under, I'll, I'll give him my dog and pony show and say, listen, if you would just, you know, give me a few extra hours of time on this project, I can, I can try and make this look better than what it does now and be more effective for your client. But ultimately it's their decision yeah. whether or not they're, you know, they're willing to do that or willing to pay us to do that or not. And 99% of the time they're not. And it's frustrating to me. I mean, it, I beat my head against a wall and, and like, you know, we try to turn out the best possible sign designs you can, but at the end of the day, if the logo on that sign looks like shit, like the rest of the sign right. doesn't matter. doesn't matter how well built it's built, no matter how it's lighted, it, none of that matters. And I think that, and Dan, you, you talk about this a bit in the book, uh, you know, there's, there's zero barrier of entry for the sign industry, right? At least from a well, from perspective, really. There's, you know, like no matter no matter how you cut it, like yeah, you know, if you got the yeah. money to buy a plotter and a and an HP, like you're in the sign business, and there's, and if you can pay the Adobe subscription every month, like boom, you're in business. Lack of education, lack of, lack of training, lack of any formal understanding that that we're in the marketing and advertising business is just it, it, it's astounding to me how many people I talk to in this industry who who don't recognize that that's the yeah. industry that they're in. They don't have any clue. Like you tell them, dude, you're in the marketing industry. You're not in the fabrication business. You're in the marketing industry. And it, that just, that concept is, 
sorely missing yeah. in this industry. Hundred percent. And yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that because I know you. It's probably something that you lose hair over <laughs> as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's on some level it's sad. You know, I I think I think we owe a tremendous responsibility to the people that are tasked with us helping to grow their business. Um, and so those parts seem just like, I don't know what the right word is. Is it, is it sad? Is it, is it, um, yeah, I mean, it is sad. It also sort of angers me. I mean, you know, when I see something out on the street that someone, maybe it's a small business, maybe it's like his last dollar that, he spent on this and it's just not going to work. And I think, you know, design is not spoken about as much as it really should be within the industry. It's even like the training certification. So you look at all the training certifications that exist in this world and, you know, especially in the, on the rap side and it's like, Hey, we're going to be Avery certified. We're going to be three M certified. And, We've got a whole list of qualifications, which which tells the consumer that you know how to physically install a wrap. But yet there isn't one certification which actually qualifies you or signifies that you're able to actually design something that's effective, that's actually going to work. Who, who gives a shit how great the install is if the message is lost? Like what point does that actually serve? But But yet there is no certification, no governing body. There's nothing you have to go through to actually, that would signify that you are actually qualified to do this particular job. Um, so it is what it is, I guess. I mean, um, I, I teach some rap design. I, I, I go to trade shows. I, I try to talk about that. I also just try to use design for, for a sign shop as a, as a means to distinguish themselves. So to me, you look at the pricing structure of uh, raps today versus where they were, you know, five years ago, even 10 years ago. And, and the prices haven't adjusted to really reflect, first of all, the cost of doing business. And and secondly, it's almost this race to the bottom as far as who can print and install at the lowest square foot possible. And so I like to look at design as a, as a means to have a shop not be competing on price per square foot, but be competing on the value of the designs that they can provide. Like as a consumer, I'll pay more for a design that's going to generate more revenue for me. Like, why wouldn't I? That would be stupid. Right. But if I, if I think shop a with the same certifications as shop B is, is 50 cents a square foot less than the other. Well, I'll, I'll go with the cheaper one because my perception is they both provide the same exact thing. So how, how do you, how do you set the expectation that your designs are actually going to generate more revenue for them and be more successful in their endeavor um, and use that as your positioning. Not that, oh yeah, we're 3M certified and, and you know, we have the best qualified, qualified installers. Well, again, that's yeah. important. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that importance, right? You got to have good installers, right? But, um, you know, the best installers is not going to fix, you know, a, a poor design. It's obvious. I think that like in this industry, like we talk about this a lot on the podcast, that a lot of people get into this business because they, they like to make cool shit. I mean, that's kind of like Bryant and I always say like, you know, I like to make cool shit. So the sign industry is a lot of fun. I got paid for it. <laughs> we forget. Right. Yeah. So we, we get, we get in that mindset where like, we're so hyper-focused on the making, what went into it. Like you said, the certification for the installation, how that, you know, pylon sign is 
you know, framed up internally and, and how it's engineered and how big, you know, sign guys, we geek out on the, the technical side of things, right? The, the internals, the vinyl it's printed on, what kind of printer you used. So I think it's like inherent in just the type of people that get into this industry that that's what they focus on and they assume that's what everybody cares about. And you're right, like at the end of the day, no, there's no customer on the planet that really at the end of the day cares if it's printed on 3M or Avery or Oracle. They don't care if your cabinet's extruded or stick built. They don't care if it's a flex face or polycarb. Nobody gives a shit. They care what it looks like, what what they see. All What you see is the only thing that the, the, the buyer actually really cares about. But sign, the sign industry is so hell-bent on, on selling the how that they, they overlook the, yeah. the why. And, I, I and it's also just yeah. a commodity based selling. So yeah. we, yeah. we are selling Absolutely. a, you know, a commodity. We're not selling a service. And if you flip that mindset and you start thinking more about the actual service of what you're providing versus your square footage price, it's a, it's a different mindset, you know, and I, and I get it. You need to know how much it will actually cost for you to print and install that wrap. Like I get that part of it. But the value of what you provide and, 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 and there's I mean, listen, there's shops that design is free. You know, you get mm-hmm. you get your your truck wrap for free. Oh, we just bury those costs into the into the fees. Well, you've just buried the value now. Now, now the consumer sees there's actually no value in it because it's free. Is that like that makes no sense to me? Like, why would why would we put design fees for free and bury them into our cost per square foot? then the consumer doesn't see there's any value in, in, in that as a separate entity. And then it just opens up another whole host of challenges when they want their logo. And well, how do we charge them for that now? Cause we did it for free included in the wrap and now they want all their, their logo file. Like it just, it's just, I don't know. Yeah, I and mean, then it's like, 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 Oh, Hey, you're going to take this, you're going to take this work to somebody else. And now we're going to charge you $2,000 yeah. to get all the assets and leave a sour taste in their mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I see those posts on the Facebook groups all the time. Like, hey, I designed this logo for a customer a few years ago, and now they want all their assets. And everybody, and they're yeah. always pissed about it. Like, you know, what do I do? Should I charge them for it? Like, well, you should have fucking charged yeah. them for it up front. That's why we have contracts. You know? <laughs> like, come on. Out of curiosity, like, say you've already got a brand designed, and and that's all established and everything. How much? How many hours do you guys put into a van? So, like, like a an average. Yeah, I, I mean, on average, I I would say that we hover around 40 to 50 hours total. And that, that, I mean, there's a lot of steps involved in that process, but we budget approximately 40 or so hours for the logo by itself and about 20 hours for the wrap design. Sometimes we use the hours, sometimes we don't, but we we have five full-time brand designers on staff. Our, Our goal for each one of those brand designers is essentially one per week. So we're, we're doing about five brand launches per week is, is roughly where we're at. Sometimes we're doing more, sometimes, you know, maybe a little bit less, but that's kind of the goal that each designer has right now. That's an incredible work rate. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. I mean, the, the amount of work that, that flows through here is, is mind numbing. It's, it's, it's crazy, but it's, you know, I want them to have the right amount of time to spend and not feel rushed. And I think that that's one of the things that the designers really appreciate is I'm not holding a gun to their head. They know what the expectation is as far as how much time that they can invest. And they don't, they don't want to put out crap work either. So I think they all appreciate the fact that that's a lot of time that you can invest 
on developing a brand. And, you know, we usually pitch two or three unique concepts. So you'll have three, you know, customer usually has three solid ideas to pick from. We may have a favorite on there, but nonetheless, you know, a lot of time is invested in that, in that process. And you say, well, okay, well, most sign shops, they can't, they can't spend 40, 40 hours on a, on a design. And, and yeah, absolutely. And, and 10 years ago, I didn't spend 40 hours on a design either. Like, you know what I mean? So it's evolved for us to be able to, first of all, be able to charge the right amount of money where me spending 40 hours on it, I'm not losing any money uh, on that endeavor. But I want, I want guys to also understand and owners to understand that, that the first logo design that we sold, that I sold personally, was $25. Okay, so <laughs> we, we all start somewhere, right? And then I raised it to 100, and then I raised it to 500, and then it was 1,000. And then I thought, oh, my God, no one will ever pay more than 1,000. And then I raised it to 5,000. You know, so it's along the way we've perfected the craft and we've been able to invest more and more into the resources to developing really, really solid brands, but it doesn't happen overnight, but you all have to start somewhere, right? So, so if you're getting 500 today, terrific, like invest in the marketing of that as a service, invest in how, and how you present your work, invest in how you talk about the results that your work gets, and then make it 750 this year, and then make it a thousand, and, and, and there's a pathway to getting to where you want to go, but you've got to market it in a way that makes that customer understand the value. And you even look at guys that are like, you know, that are really super efficient that have been designing logos for a long time and they can maybe bang something out that's, that's halfway decent in five hours. And you think that, well, well, because it took me five hours, like I, I don't have to charge as much as it would have if it took me 10 hours. And it's like, well, no, it took you five hours because you've got 10 years worth of experience. Why, why are you going to penalize yourself for being efficient, for being really good at your job? Like it, that never makes any sense to me either. It's like, well, no, charge the value of what it is, not what your hourly rate is, because your hourly rate now is, is a result of 10 years of experience. Like, so those little things also like seem very strange. Mike, to me. are you listening? <laughs> Dan and I are yeah, in different uh, businesses. I, I, I wish I, I could. Uh, yeah, we've talked about this before. Adopt that Brian's always cheerleading me to charge more for my work, but the reality is my clients don't understand the value of my work, so I have to take what I can get. <laughs> I've, I've definitely pigeonholed myself into a weird niche in the industry that isn't as lucrative as it should yeah. be. We need, we need to get you hooked up with the, like the design firms and the architects and stuff, don't we? Dan, I got a couple of, a couple yeah, of follow-up questions here for you. Uh, just for our listeners and just to touch back on something that Bryant was saying a little earlier about your book and how you, you know, you, you specifically call out the return on investment for your clients. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to the, some of the ways that you will go about reporting on some of the ROI of your current clients? Like how, if you, if I'm a new client of yours mm-hmm. and I'm in the plumbing business and how, how can you talk to me about the value of what you bring when it, and what you, what type of data do you present to someone like myself? with some of the other plumbing companies that you've worked with? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it certainly became or has become a lot easier to have those conversations because we have so many examples. So we could say, Hey, here's a million dollar a year plumber that we rebranded two years ago. And right now they're at $4 million. And here's the things that we did to help him along the way. 
Now, now I don't want anyone to think that just because you put a shiny new logo and brand out on the street that suddenly now everything is rosy and that these guys are always going to kill it. You obviously have to have your operations down. You have to have all, all, all the right staffing, the right leadership. So I don't, I don't want to dismiss or discount the, the, what the, effort. what the operation does, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like discount there, still, there still has to be best practices that yeah. they do in order to make it go to 4 million. But I guess but, my, where my question is, 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 is more specific to how do you know that they did 4 million? Are you having those yeah, conversations? Yeah. yeah, we have those conversations. Certainly in our kickoff and our briefing documents, we ask about current revenue size, how many employees they have. Um, what are their particular challenges that they've been experiencing up until this point as it relates to revenue? And you could also see that if you judge like the years prior and you say, well, um, actually that company in, in Florida that I was t- talking about earlier, they, they were at 2.5 uh, when we rebranded them and it took them nine years to get to 2.5. OK, so so steady, steady incremental growth. Then we rebrand them and. They doubled, I think, in the first year, and now they're at over 13 million, right? So, so like it was, it was wow. kind of going up, kind of going up, kind of, and then it was like boom. So it's like this inflection point, and all load, all, all roads lead back to this change in culture, this change in brand, this change in marketing strategy. And so we know, again, they were they were doing well operationally, like all five star reviews, like great, you know, leadership. But it just wasn't gaining any traction. Like people didn't know who they were. And now everyone in that community knows that particular brand. You know, we did the tagline for them. We did this really unique, unique story. And and so I always like to say it is the inflection point for most of these businesses in, in that it really reshapes their trajectory in, in, a, in a positive way. And so when, when you ask too about, well, how are we getting these results or how do we how do we ascertain them? That takes effort, right? So, so we reach back out to them six months later or a year later and say, what's the numbers? What are they looking like? And, oh, well, I was at 2 million last year and this year we're projecting to do three and a half. Well, terrific. You know, and, and it's almost become like a weird thing, but it's like a badge of honor for them to actually be included on our website, to be on the page that talks about the revenue growth. Like they're so excited like, oh, dude, like, I can't wait to get on there. Like, so they become like our biggest cheerleaders as well, because they're really proud of that results. Um, and, you know, sometimes they're like, they're friendly. A lot of them are friendly because they're all in the same groups, but they're like, oh, dude, I'm going to blow yours away. And they become like, competitive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I love that. Man. <laughs> I love that. Kinda, I love that. that you use cool. your, you use your own website as like a, a means of like awards. I love that. I love that a lot. Yeah. Hey, uh, just a quick question. We're all designers here on the call here today. I'm, I'm curious, though. I mean, did you all, did you start out with the same philosophy? Did you kind of mold yourself into this? And, and who were some of those designers that you looked to, you know, to to establish this type of philosophy early on? Yeah, I got into the, the industry as a sign painter. So I actually lettered my first home service truck. My, the first truck I ever lettered, hand lettered, was for a chimney repair company in Staten Island, New York, where I grew up. You may hear my little New York accent coming out a little bit here. So no, get I, out of here, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I started working doing lettering, and I was doing pinstriping and things like that. And I, and I was so blessed. And I, talk, I, I basically credit him in the beginning of the book with the sign painter that gave me my first job. I was, I was 16 or 17 years old. I walked into his sign shop and, and honestly, and this is how, how 
passionate I was about being in the industry. And I was like, dude, I'll, I'll sweep the floors. Like, I don't, I don't give a shit. I just want to be around this world. And, and he was an amazing sign painter. One of the most talented guys I know. He taught me so much about layout. Um, so when we would do a truck, it adhered to these basic principles about legibility, about contrast, um, about priority. So I learned so much, just the physical aspect of hand lettering a truck and stepping back and looking at it and saying, oh yeah, okay, that doesn't have enough contrast or that needs something to make it come forward a little bit more. So learning about priority, learning about foreground, background. So, I mean, I'm 17, 18 years old. Then I, then I wanted to just be a sign painter. My parents like, no, like you should go to college. So I did go to college and I studied advertising. But all through college, I would come home and work in his sign shop. And so I kind of had the best of this world, like a structured formal education about how advertising and advertising design works. And then I had him like executing some of these things on, on these vans. And then I look at guys like Bob Honick, who is a sign painter, has been in Signcraft for years. And he had, a, he had a lot of, again, the same philosophy of using sometimes these super graphics on these these vans and they called them super graphics back then, but it was again, a dominant element that had like a lot of punch. So you would see this dominant element and then you'd have the name flanking it. And and that repetition of that element is something that certainly you could look at our body of work and you'll see the, the roots of that where, where, where you are working with kind of these super graphics and trying to really just hammer home something like really big, really unexpected because it's more disruptive in that particular space. So I got really fortunate the the pathway that kind of led me to where we are but i you know i, I actually talked to him the other day because i sent him a copy of the book and i thanked him because i'm so so grateful for the opportunities that he gave me but i said like dude 30 years later your fingerprints are still in almost every job that leaves this company you know that's the impact that you've had on on my career and again, you know, just so fortunate and blessed. And there's been other others, you know, you guys, you know, the Jersey style lettering, which is really popular in the 80s and 90s, influenced me a bit. But I think as I evolved, when you mentioned earlier about you get into the science because you want to do super cool stuff, I think a lot of my earlier work was more for my benefit than it was for my client's benefit. And, and probably about 10, 15 years ago, I started realizing that, you know, diamond plate and, and tribal shit on the van. Like, <laughs> while it seems super cool at the time, um, it's probably not really in their best interest. So I, I started evolving the idea that I didn't really care what other designers thought of my work. That wasn't who I was trying to impress anymore. But in the beginning, I feel like I was trying to impress other designers and, and other sign guys by doing really cool stuff. But now to me, it's it's more cool to see to see the results of the work that we do. And and I think what I'm blessed with the team here is the idea that we know that our work has the ability to change lives. Right. So if you if you accept that that responsibility and that notion, then then the work that you do will be reflected in that notion. Right. So so we know the results that we can get for our clients. We know that the task that they've given us is this enormous responsibility. Right. But we, we had a client that literally she gave us her last $20,000 on a project that we had to do. That was it. She was all in. I didn't know at the time that that had happened. I didn't know that that was basically 
her all in. And we had to rename her and rebrand her and do her trucks and a, and a few other things. And she is crushing it right now. She's doing a million dollars a month in revenue, 18 months after rebranding with us when she was doing 30,000 a month before. So the numbers are just insane. But that's the kind of thing as far as that responsibility. Like, what if I fucked that up? Like, what if I screwed up that job? And and now she's got like 25 people working for her. She has this most amazing culture, the most amazing environment. And oh my God, like that's how, that's, we're so proud of that. Like we're, we're so incredibly blessed to be able to have that impact on, on people. And I sort of went a little bit tangent on you guys, but definitely the experience I had working in a sign shop very early on with someone who mentored me and helped me understand so much about composition and values of layout and just, you know, I don't think I'd be here today without, without that experience. So you talked about your team there a little bit. So how, how do you, what has been your secret to building that successful team, so, team that, that is genuinely passionate and in love with what they do as much as you are? Cause it's, it's hard to find a team that cares as much as the owner or the boss does, right? Like everybody's there for a paycheck and they check out where, how do you cultivate? So that? how do you, I think we, we, we work so hard on culture here. We work so hard on, on, um, trying to attract the best talent and we treat them amazingly well. I think that when we think about who you compliment your team with, as far as like my personal shortcomings, like I suck at illustration, like I can't draw, like I'm really good with topography, but you ask me to draw someone's face for a mascot, forget about it. Like, it's not going to happen. Like I can't do that. But very early on, probably 20 years ago, I hired my first illustrator and I used to do the type and I would say, dude, give me like a little guy over here above the type and he would sketch it out. And like, that's how we work together. So I just made a very conscious decision to surround myself with people that complement my own skill set. And I used to say that they were smarter than me, but it's not really a question of being smarter than me. It's just being better at a different skill set than I am. What can they add to the team that I'm not very good at? So even from a leadership perspective, I don't run day to day here anymore. I have someone else that runs day to day. I have someone else that does HR and payroll. You know, I have people in charge of writers. I have people in charge of designers. So the part that I stay focused on is I stay focused on branding. So that's the part I love. That's why I got into this business and I sucked at the other things. Like I sucked at trying to get payroll done. I sucked at, at trying to run operations here and I don't want to do it. Like I don't, I'm not, I'm not passionate about that stuff, but I've always just tried to surround myself with people that add value and complement my own skill sets. So like even the five illustrators that we have on staff, they're all stylistically different. They each kind of bring a different sort of flavor to the mix. And I think that that's really important too, because, you know, we have one that's maybe very, really good at, at pictorial type of logos. And we have another one that's really good at more clean and simple logos. So like, I don't care what genre you need a brand or what genre you want to focus on. Like we have the right people to really try to try to do that. So if, if you're hiring, you know, the idea of also just trying to make sure that it, the team that works under you feels valued, feels appreciated, you know, and, and that you're taking care of them. It's not all about like how much money I can make it. It's more about how much money can this company make that I can positively impact the people who work for me, that I could pay them better. I can give them better benefits. 
you know, we can afford to do bonuses. We can afford to do trips. We can afford to, to like, I pay for lunch, you know, once a week. I pay for Dunkin' Donuts uh, down the hall. So, you know, I try to do some of those little tiny things, but they, they sort of add up. And from a cultural standpoint, I think we have a really strong culture. Everyone is really grateful to be a part of this team. So, you know, I, again, just looking at your own shortcomings and, and not having the ego to say, to admit it. I mean, you know, to be able to say, I suck at this. I really need to find somebody that's better at this than I am because I suck at it. And that's okay. Like, I'm not, I'm not pissed off that I suck at a lot of things. It's, 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 it's fine. I, I, I freaking love that, man. Because we, like, how many conversations have we had with guys, Mike, that are like reaching for something that they're just not going to do? Like, hey, I, I want to buy a franchise yeah. because it's going to give me the structure and make me do this. But if you're not a manager, like, you're, you're just not a manager. Like, it's, it's okay. That's not your personality. That's not your skill set. That's not your strength. But like, trying to, become one, you're going to hinder your business more so than like, Hey, I should just find a good person who is a manager who has yeah. the skill set and bring them in. And, and for me, mm -hmm. like Ego. I, I learned this as far as relying on the team and really trusting your team sort of the hard way. I had a heart issue 20 months ago where I, I actually had to have double bypass surgery and yeah, talk to us and, about that, man. Like what, what happened? So, like what changes, you know, yeah. So for a guy racing bicycles for 20 years and, and 145 pounds and uh, in amazing health. Yeah. I had a heart issue. I had two blockages in my Widowmaker and I had to have open heart surgery to fix it. And so I was laid up for a while. Like it's, I don't recommend the surgery if you don't need to get it, <laughs> but I had put somebody in charge of operations here before that even happened, not knowing that that was on a horizon, but I wasn't really allowing them to assume that role properly. I was still involved in shit that I shouldn't have been involved in. And so now I'm forced with a scenario where I'm laid up. I can't really work. I can't really do anything. And I had to trust the team to really come through and, and, and they crushed it. I mean, and, and it was great for me because I, I was forced into that too. So now like, there's so many things that happen on here that I have no idea what's going on. All I know is it's working. And so I'm just like, all right, cool. This is what you guys want to do. That sounds great. Just do it. So I've really be learned to trust the team, to trust the process. And, and honestly, the numbers don't lie as far as like how much we've grown since I've stepped back actually from that role. So it's, and I'm okay with that. Like, I'm not pissed off at that. Like, it's not my okay. ego saying, oh, well, I, I kind of sucked, I guess. And you guys are killing it. I'm like proud of that. I'm like, well, you know what? I got somebody that's doing this better than I was ever doing it. And that's awesome because we're, we're growing so much faster now and we're doing so many more cool things and that's fine. And, and I'm sitting in my corner and I'm super stoked that I can work on some logos and, and do that part of the part that I still like, but I'm not bogged down in the stuff that I, I wasn't good at bottom line. What was that like internally for you? Like being laid up and like for a guy who's super driven obviously like you're very involved in the business and like suddenly not being able to like participate or, or be involved on that level. Like what did you go through like anything like emotionally or, or mentally during that time? Because like, yeah, we, I mean, we don't talk about that enough. It like, uh, like owning a sign shop, stressful business, yeah, Stre yeah. <laughs> stressful business, custom order every time out of the gate. I, I had some guy, 
in the past tell me like, Hey, why don't you just clean carpets for a living? It'd be a lot easier. You're going to make more money doing that. That's like, <laughs> so. I, I, I think, um, I mean, listen, honestly, when they, when they wheel you into the OR and they cut you in half and stop your heart for three, four hours and do all this shit and patch you back up, you know, you really start, first of all, to recognize that, everyone's time here is actually limited. Like we all have an expiration date, like newsflash, like we're not going to all live forever. Right. So, so you really start to think about that. But I think I approached the time afterwards with, with a deeper sense of gratitude. And it's not just gratitude for not dying, which obviously was kind of cool, but, but the idea that I live each day more appreciating the fact that I'm still here the fact that I have an amazing team, that the fact the fact that I have a really cool business, and so from a personal standpoint, I look at that experience as literally the best thing that ever happened to me outside of my kids being born and my wife and things like that. But I'm so I'm so happy I went through that experience because I came out on the other side a different person, and and you can't help but not be a different person having gone through that, but. When you're faced with the idea that, you know, you have this expiration date, despite how healthy you may have thought you were, we all have this expiration date. Um, and so I've just tried to live in a manner that is more grateful and thankful. So like today, today we had the, the you know, today we're having a Thanksgiving celebration here early. And we also gave out all the bonuses to all the employees today. And so that was like an opportunity again, just to express gratitude to them and, and that experience. Like, I just love that part of what we can do for our, for our people. So, you know, the idea of just, you know, also living in the moment and recognizing that this thing that we have here, we also have this other thing called family and, and <laughs> friends and, and that focusing on that as well. And I think I had, I had sidestepped that a little bit during during, you know, my career, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but I, you know, we all could be doing more with our families and, and remembering that, that those are the things that are really important. Everything in balance. 100%. Yeah. hundred percent. I think that it naturally kind of leads us into a close, but, um, you know, you've got a captive audience of sign shop owners here. Like you want to get on the, the soapbox for a minute? Like what, like gut punch these guys, like what, what advice would you give the sign shop owner now? Like, Hey, listen to Dan, like he's going to tell you, like, what, what advice would you give them at this point? Like, I, I would, I would say continue to invest in yourself, continue to invest in learning this craft, educate yourself and design as if lives are at stake with the work that you do. And I guarantee you, it'll change your mindset and it'll change the way your company is perceived. Invest in marketing the services that you provide and, and distinguish your shop and use design as a way to do that. You know, focus on the results that you get from clients. Talk to them about the results that you've got. Leverage those results. You know, it takes effort to do the marketing of any design company. So whether it's a sign company or a design company, invest in having them understand the value that you bring to the table and then again, to focus on cultivating talent and people that are enthused and excited about that. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that our team loves is, again, the fact that we're able to change people's lives and that our work affects people's lives. Like we literally have a 
out in, in the main area where everyone works is we have a, a, a banner and it says our work changes lives. And it's got all the, like half a dozen case studies of revenue increases for all these, these different companies. So it's like a visual reminder of how important the work is that we do for our people. So if you approach it from that perspective and say the responsibility that this business has given me is a sacred one. And I really need to make sure that I am delivering value, that I am educated on what I should be doing for them that would be in their best interest. If you can become their biggest advocate, you'll build clients that will that will be loyal to you and that will become your biggest cheerleaders. Like we don't advertise like I don't like pay to advertise, but every single person that goes through this process becomes our biggest cheerleader. So anytime someone posts something about rebranding, now I've got legions basically of super fans. And they love what we've done for them. And so if you can build, again, those legions of super fans, I think your business will will grow. It'll distinguish yourself. But invest in yourself. You've got to be willing to invest in yourself. I mean, listen, there's not just my books, but there's books out there that can help you. Buy them, read them, study them, like understand consumer psychology, understand branding, understand legibility, like work on those things. And ultimately, it'll benefit you. Yeah. Do you guys ever like work with sign shop owners? Like, hey, I've got a client I will refer to you type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We have, we absolutely do that. You know, a a lot of companies, you know, they know the work that that we do and, and a lot of them are are obviously trying to land some of the bigger fleet accounts, which we tend to live in when we do the rebrands and stuff like that. So we absolutely do work with other sign shops. Mainly we do that as a standalone endeavor. Like I don't work through a sign shop. I'm going to work directly with the end, the end end user. So they're like making an introduction for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of a, like a lot of shop owners that we talk to, like maybe they know like, okay, like our current skill set is not being designed first or super design oriented. Like how can we start shifting into like this consultative approach? Like, Hey, take up this mantle of, yeah. Like, Hey, we're really paying attention to the results that we're delivering for the client. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. And, and sometimes, like you said, they're just not, they're not at that level or they actually can't provide that service, but partner up with people who can and resell that services, or at least make the connection and, and work with that other company that's going to actually do the work. But if you're trying to get the larger fleet accounts, I mean, that's, that's a way to sort of get into that world too, is, you know, if you can do the design work for them and then you get the fleet account that goes along with it after. Good point. Guys, uh, Mike, Pete, any closing questions or thoughts? Wow. This is, this is really awesome. It's, it's good to hear this directly from, <laughs> from the horse's mouth, I guess. It's, it's, I hope people are paying attention to what Dan is saying. Do you have, I didn't hear Peter's keyboard, so I'm not sure if he's, it took notes. Did, did you get a pin this time, Pete? Uh, still no pen. I'm still typing. I'm just muting my mic before my finger touches uh, okay. the keyboard. Okay. I apologize. Okay. <laughs> the, to me, listen, uh, Dan, it, it was really nice having you as a guest. I was really looking forward to to hearing. I wanted to take a, a back seat and just listen. I believe in your philosophy. I wish that more shop owners believed in your same philosophy. If you haven't gone out, we haven't plugged his book yet, guys. So we got to plug his book. So if you yeah, haven't yeah. gone out. From and New Yorker to New out, Yorker. So. Plug his book, Pete. Yeah, man, for real. I, I, this was one of the best. To me, it's like a blueprint for how every rap shop or how every sign shop needs to go. 
uh, about branding. And, and you heard some things from Dan here today. Personally, the ones that ring true for me, which I already knew, but for those of you that are, you know, listening to this podcast, whenever you are listening to it, if your number is bigger than your brand, you got some problems. I love that. That was like a really great, that was a really great, just one line explanation as to just the fundamental error that we continue to see all over print shops, sign shop, wrap shops, where they just let the customer dictate what they want because they're the ones paying the bill. Whereas Dan's philosophy is if you don't do it my way, then you're not my type of customer. And, and, and while we all don't have the power of firing customers because we need that revenue, that cash flow coming in, it's you're not the way from after reading this book, my interpretation is if you're not believing in yourself, in your skills, you're not going to be a major player in this market. If you see yourself being a reputable sign company where, where your work speaks for itself, and you're charging by the square foot and you're using vendors that are, like you said earlier, you know, the, the, the race to do it the cheapest. You got your you're upside down with some of the ways that you're thinking. You need to start thinking more towards generating ROI for your customers because that's what they're buying. That's what they're investing in. If it's your designs that get them there, that's what you need to be focused on. And that's where kick charge uh kick charging your home service brand or doesn't necessarily even need to be home service right i would think dan that's your forte but it just goes for any type of business yeah it's any vertical for sure so if you haven't checked it out right now dan tell us what tell our listeners where they can get your book from so you can get it through our website at kickcharge.com forward slash books B-O-O-K-S, or you can get it on Amazon. If you get it through our site, it's actually a little bit cheaper than Amazon, and I will personally autograph it, and it will be worth hundreds as soon as I die. So (laughs) you'll have that going for you, which is nice. Very nice, very nice. Dan, super glad to have you on. If anyone listening is interested in becoming a guest on the podcast, hit us up at hey at bettersignshop.com. That's it for today. Yeah, I don't think we have any other calls to action. Man, this was a good one. Dan, I appreciate you taking the time out. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, guys. Appreciate being on. Take care, guys. If you liked this episode, make sure you hit subscribe to get all the latest episodes. And check out our website, bettersignshop.com. Get free resources and helpful tools on growing your shop. Thanks for listening.